During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a progressive show I think you should check out. It's the Laura Flanders Show, which you may have heard of because they've been doing their good work for a long, long time now. So keep an ear out mid-show when I tell you more about it. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the rise of woke capitalism, or more specifically, the war on woke capitalism, which is the cudgel now being wielded against any corporations who dare to seek profits by appealing to the majority of potential customers who prefer progressive social positions to that of Republicans. Clips today are from Sand Spear on YouTube, The Bradcast, After Hours from the TED Audio Collective, More Perfect Union, the Dollamore Daily, and The Couch Report from Vice News, with an additional members-only clip from Uneffing the Republic. And stay tuned to the end, where I will do my best to explain, better than others have been, where woke capitalism came from. In recent years, there has been a political undertaking of a word quite familiar within the Black community, woke. The term started as slang and was more often spoken aloud than written down, making the exact etymology unclear. What we do know is that it can be traced back at least to the 1920s and was used as a Black vernacular variant of the term woken or awake. As language evolved, it became synonymous with social change. To be woke effectively meant to be aware. Aishina Robinson further defines wokeness as an in-group signal urging Black people to be aware of the systems that harm and other otherwise put us at a disadvantage, end quote. And notes that it later came to encompass overarching diversity, inclusion, empathy, and to this day, blackness. Now, if we believe the 1920s to be the decade of wokeness, it would do us some good to contextualize the environment. This was after the Civil War and a few decades removed from the Reconstruction era, slavery had just been abolished a couple decades prior, and the United States was trying its hardest to work towards equity for every man regardless of race. Obviously, that didn't completely work out, so so I can see how the term evolved into the social justice cornerstone that it did. Despite the system of slavery being terminated, Black people still had to reckon with the fact that they were not seen as equal in the eyes of some individuals, as well as some systems. George Lipschitz speaks of housing discrimination, educational discrimination, and as we're probably more familiar with, discriminatory judicial systems, police, and Jim Crow laws. It would make sense to try to be aware of this reality. If you're unaware, you're unable to fight against it. James Baldwin, one of my favorite writers of all time, once noted that white Americans have been encouraged to continue dreaming, and black Americans have been alerted to the necessity of waking up. In 1962, William Melvin Kelly published a New York Times article titled, If You're Woke, You Dig It. And in it, Kelly describes the co-opting of black language by white beatniks, the younger, more hip demographic of the 1950s and early 1960s. According to Wikipedia, white beatniks borrowed popular slang from jazz and hipster subcultures for their own use. Words like cat and dig, and yes, even woke, became frequent visitors to their lexicon. Kelly was something of a prophet, it seems, because this popular co-opting of black vernacular by trendy, oftentimes white subcultures, persists today. AAVE has its own grammar systems and definitions. It can be used to make complex thoughts and sentences, much like English or any other language. If people outside of the dialect are going to use it, 
It must be used appropriately. This is significant to the war on woke, which is what I'm calling it, because the term has recently been appropriated by people outside of the Black community to speak on issues antithetical to the purpose of the word. Conservatives have been increasingly using the term woke to refer to the enemy of their political beliefs. Elon Musk calls woke a mind disease that's ruining comedy. Marco Rubio, a Florida senator, consistently calls wokeness progressive craziness, cultural issues that tear at our nation's fabric, and toxic nonsense. Even everyone's favorite poning-owning, liberal-destroying conservative, Ben Shapiro, wrote a book titled If it ain't woke, don't fix it. And yet, despite their prolific use of the term, not a single conservative seems to understand what it truly means. Alan Smith et al. note that, of the conservatives they interviewed for the publication of their article, very few understood the word or had a cohesive grasp of definition. A Republican Senate aide stated that, it's just instinctual, like, you know it when you see it. An argument so popular it made it all the way to the Supreme Court and so uninspired that the person who said it wishes he never did. And despite his constant use of the word woke, Marco Rubio stated, I don't know when I became aware of it. That's more of a clarion call to Republicans who have been tied to the sort of libertarian view of the economy that we shouldn't be playing a role in that. Is that even a sentence? Not even Ben Shapiro, who wrote an entire book on the subject, and who made condescending remarks about Ibram X. Kendi's apparent lack of defining structural racism, didn't define wokeness in his particular book. But trust he'll find a way to incorporate the term into another, the way he does with woke-a-cola and vocabulary. Those are kind of funny, I'm not gonna lie. The importance of a clear definition cannot be understated. If you're unable to explicitly define something, how will you organize an effective movement against it? Well, little like this. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. Shapiro makes an interesting point in his book concerning how the woke liberal leftist lecturing mob often broadens out the meaning of a word, end quote, to reach their agenda. His example is how leftists apparently consider anything incitement so long as it elicits strong emotions. And I found that intriguing, the emphasis on strong emotion. Steven Pinker, who is a well-known albeit controversial Harvard professor, also notes how words have two meanings when it comes to politics. He speaks of euphemisms and dysphemisms and how a word can have its literal meaning, but also a more emotionally charged meaning that can be utilized in political rhetoric. Of course, the left does this, but so do conservatives. The war on woke doesn't need a definition because the word itself has become a curse word. It gets people emotionally charged, especially people who understand the underlying meaning of that clarion call, as Marco Rubio described it as. It's not that conservatives are unable to define what they're against. It's just that the game of politics is to never say what you actually mean. It's easier to wink, nudge, and imply it to your constituents than to ever outright say it. That way, when an armed group of your supporters storm the Capitol, you can feign innocence. Allegedly. The inconsistency of defining the word they're essentially crusading against makes it harder to tell what conservatives are opposing if you don't know how to recognize patterns. The war on woke is left intentionally vague so that conservatives may list anything under the label, so long as they don't like it, without having to name the various phobias and isms that plague their movement, 
For instance, despite not knowing exactly what woke is, they all managed to rally around similar topics. The constant attack of transgender healthcare and basic human rights, the continual dismissal of critical race theory and systemic racism, the weaponization of groomer against LGBTs and drag queens. Though they don't say what woke is, the pattern in which they attack certain groups makes it clear what they mean. But that still doesn't answer a crucial question I had before researching this video. Knowing the history of the word woke and how words can change meaning based on emotion or political agenda, I still wondered why conservatives adopted this specific term as a rallying cry. What is so evil about a word that once meant progress, equality, and black awareness? We could chalk it up to mere anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia, and racism, because there were many, many, many cases where that is their purpose, to harm others they view as inferior or unfairly protected. But I think another aspect of the conservative hate train stems from an impending doom within conservatives and people who relate to them. And this doom is expressed as, and oftentimes exploited by, moral panics. Therefore, the word of the day, dearest viewers, is fear. Conservatives and the people who may not be conservative but definitely feel seen by them are afraid. ESG, in case you did not know, as I did not, uh, as the Times describes it, is shorthand for prioritizing environmental, social, and governance factors, ESG. A strategy that has been adopted, they say, by major corporations around the globe for many years now, as Desi notes. Now, Republicans around the country say that Wall Street has suddenly taken a sharp left turn. You know, as major Wall Street corporations do, those lefties, with Republicans uh, now attacking what they term woke capitalism and dragging businesses, their one-time allies, into the culture wars, reports Gellis. The rancor escalated this week, notes Gellis, as Congress entered the fray. Republicans used their new majority in the House on Tuesday to vote 216 to 204 to overturn a Department of Labor rule that allows retirement funds to consider climate change and other factors when choosing companies in which to invest. It does not force them to do so. It allows them to do so. It does not require it in any way whatsoever. It just allows money managers to consider these things if they want to. Frankly, I would be fine if they were uh, forced to consider climate change and other factors like that when choosing companies in which to invest. But that is not the issue here. They were simply allowed to do so. So that passed in the new Republican majority House. And then the Senate followed on Wednesday with two Democrats, Senator Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and John Tester of Montana, both joining Republicans to send this resolution to President Biden's desk. Both Tester and Manchin are up for reelection in 2024. The White House has said that uh, Biden will block the resolution. It would be the first veto of his presidency. And as if to underscore the issue's sudden visibility, former Vice President Mike Pence, who is 
probably going to be running for president, he let loose on Twitter on Tuesday, quote, disappointing that President Biden is putting ESG and woke policies above hardworking Americans' retirement accounts. We will keep fighting until we put a stop to ESG once and for all. <laughs> well, gosh, I hope so. I mean, think of the children. But of course, that is what they are decidedly not doing in this case. Back to the times here. ESG investing has become routine on Wall Street for years. Most companies issue extensive reports about their efforts to combat climate change and commitment to workplace diversity. And now they do so whether they actually carry out those efforts or not. But, you know, they got to pretend in recent months. However, so-called conservatives have increasingly attacked the practice, arguing that it promotes liberal priorities ranging from renewable energy. Oh, God forbid, to the Black Lives Matter movement. And, of course, those things sound terrible. Clean energy, renewable energy that doesn't kill people and helps to save humanity. That must be stopped. And, of course, the abhorrent idea that black lives actually matter. Gellis notes, and while ESG applies to everything from diversity among corporate leaders to corruption controls, it's the E in ESG that the, uh, the idea that the private sector needs to consider its impact on the environment that has emerged as the top target of Republicans. Aha. Now we are finally getting to the heart of the matter here. Officials in Republican-led states argue that it would lead to disinvestment in fossil fuel companies. Well, there you go. Making it a top target of right-wing commentators and politicians. Is this all starting to make sense now? Alexandra Mihalescu Tishon, executive president at Rep Risk, a company that helps corporations track their ESG goals. Yes, there are companies that have been created to do exactly this for years, and there was no war about it until now. Sishan told the Times, quote, ESG has been caught in the cultural war crosshairs in the U.S. It's become a liberal versus conservative, Democrat versus Republican issue. Actually, it's become a Republican issue. End of story. And by calling it a war, we are somehow uh, conceding that, you know, those of us who don't watch Fox all the time are in some kind of war over this, quote, culture issue of ESG. Is a livable planet for humanity now simply a debate about culture? Republicans plan hearings this year at which the Times uh, calls the uh, conservative lawmakers likely to grill executives from some of the nation's biggest banks on their views about climate change, social issues and more. And the Times also notes that there are indications that this pushback is gaining traction. Vanguard, one of the world's largest investment firms, recently withdrew from the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative an effort intended to get institutional money managers engaged in the fight against climate change. And that, of course, is the entire point. BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, has been going out of its way to remind politicians that, yes, it still invests in fossil fuel industries. Please don't harm us. Please don't hurt us. 
As the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission considers a new rule that would require corporations to disclose their carbon emissions, not to cut them, mind you, just to disclose them, to disclose what their carbon emissions are each year. As the SEC is considering a new rule to require that, industry groups, fossil fuel companies, and Republican lawmakers have been pushing to limit that. Don't tell anyone how much you're killing the planet. That's an outrage. And that's what this is all about. Not even letting people know what the carbon emissions are, what the carbon output is of any various company. We can't have that. Around the country... Republican state treasurers have been withdrawing billions of dollars in the meantime from firms like BlackRock that they deem uh, to be, quote, woke, even while BlackRock is still saying, wait, we love deadly fossil fuels. Don't take your money away from us. To the ranks of wonky risk management professionals who have toiled over the minutia of ESG reports for decades now, the political fracas is perplexing. Quote, until very recently, it was both obscure and also just accepted as a general part of investing, said Josh Lichtenstein, a partner at a law firm Ropes and Gray, who is tracking the ESG backlash. The term ESG was first introduced in a 2004 report prepared by the United Nations and 20 financial firms, including, you know, those woke lefties at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and UBS. Not exactly the most lefty woke organizations in the world. The current ESG backlash can be traced to Texas, where in 2020, Oil executives began complaining that big banks like J.P. Morgan had stopped lending them money. Got it? Is it beginning to come together for you now? Republican legislators in Austin took up their cause. Quote, if ESG is not put in check, not only will future retirees face challenges in the years ahead, but we could see record bankruptcies and layoffs. In the energy sector, said Wayne Christian, one of the Texas energy regulators back in 2021. Never mind that investment in renewable energies and technologies, let's say, oh, I don't know, electric vehicle maker Tesla would have netted huge gains for those future retirees that uh, Wayne Christian is so worried about. Never mind that the so-called energy sector is much larger than just the oil and gas industry and that renewable energy is by the way far more promising for future investment gains than is fossil fuels never mind that the republicans in texas want to help their billionaire donors in the fossil fuel industry period end of story and so they have invented this new pretend so-called culture war on esg Longtime listeners will know that Best of Left has been featuring The Laura Flanders Show for more than a decade, and it's easy to understand why. Veteran journalist Laura Flanders not only provides a deeply informative show, but one that also offers the elusive and essential vision for a better future. Every week, Laura interviews forward-thinking people, activists, artists, journalists, scholars, and impacted community members from around the U.S. and the globe to discuss racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice 
in depth while revealing solutions and a path forward. We are big fans here at the show. So if you enjoyed our recent special edition episode on re-indigenization and decolonization, we encourage you to check out Laura's latest interview, Warrior Women and Wounded Knee at 50, with Madonna Thunderhawk and Marcella Gilbert. It's basically a companion piece to our episode. You can watch The Laura Flanders Show on YouTube or listen as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or head to lauraflanders.org slash listen. What's being labeled by some right now as woke capitalism is what we were calling stakeholder capitalism not too long ago. (laughs) Woke capitalism is clearly meant to be derogatory, but I think there's actually pretty broad support. I think it's fascinating. By attaching the word woke to the stakeholder capitalism debate, people have been able to very quickly demonize in the eyes of some, that whole idea of stakeholder capitalism. And so I think that was kind of a master rhetorical move. (laughs) Because the word woke is so evocative and provocative that it immediately makes people think a certain thing about what stakeholder capitalism is. Mm. I happen not to be like the biggest fan of stakeholder capitalism, but what's interesting to me is by doing it this way, it somehow galvanized people. Uh The other interesting thing to me about your story, Dolly, is that wasn't really clear that the customers cared that much. The negative reaction wasn't really representative of their customers, which seems to me like a broader issue, which is I think this is a debate which is carried out on the margins by very vocal people mm-hmm. <laughs> who have very strong feelings. Yeah. And then there's a mass of people in the middle who don't really care. Don't really care. And maybe this is part of the problem me here the marginal nature of many of the activities. I remember, this is now a couple of years back, when the Business Roundtable Mm. officially said goodbye to shareholder-only concerns and adopted stakeholder capitalism. And we have colleagues at the law school who then looked into this decision. And you would think, if this is real, if it's a fundamental change in how you think about what the company is supposed to do, You would have expected lots of board discussions. And what that research found is that almost no one talked to their boards about it, which then also gives it a little bit of flavor. Maybe this is pretending. And so a change in the brand, ultimately, you can tell it as a very successful story because not that many people got upset and many people felt much better about the brand, as you have pointed out, Dolly. It seems like a win-win, but maybe the win-wins occur because we're doing marginal things. We're doing things that no one really cares about that much. It's more like window dressing as opposed to substantial reform. That's really interesting. And, you know, there's research on moral licensing, which is the notion that we do a good thing, even if it's performative. And, you know, it's like you eat the salad, then you have the ice cream. It kind of creates. (laughs) But here's the counter on that. Societal leadership is now a core function of business. McKinsey summarized it as a paradox of the public has low trust, but high expectations of business right now. So it's an awkward position to be in. Let me make sure I understand where you're going. So one view is Felix's view, which is that it's really performative. There's another view, which is that actually this whole emphasis on stakeholder capitalism is kind of old wine in new bottles. It's the (laughs) same thing that we've always been doing. The way you build a good business is you serve your constituents. And by the way, that turns out to be good for shareholders, too. And then there's the third view, I think, where you're going, which is, no, this is really different. 
people expect business to solve societal problems and business can solve societal problems. Is that where you're at? To me, that's what's emerging as the quandary here. Maybe businesses are in a shallow way accepting the role, but not in a deep way. But the expectations seem to be there. But the other critique is that once you start to expect business to do this, first off, it becomes polarizing in a way that somehow business was not before. And then maybe more so that somehow we have let corporations start to mediate public problems. Mm -hmm. What do you make of those kinds of critiques? I think they're legitimate critiques because especially with the polarizing point you made, when a business sort of aligns with our own personal values and takes a stance, you know, maybe we're like, yeah, go for it. I love it. I want to work there. And then when they don't, we're like, how dare they impose their values on me? So we definitely have this asymmetric perspective on when business should get involved and when it shouldn't. But I think the days of businesses thinking they can just be businesses are over, honestly, rightly or wrongly. So I'm not saying that prescriptively. I'm saying it descriptively. I think those days are over. Hmm. So Dali, one of the things I really loved about your book is to say in all of these corporate decisions, and even frankly, in many of the personal decisions that we make, we now have a sense that these decisions are really big because they're emblematic for choosing a side. Either I really, really love my country and there's nothing wrong with it and all of history is really wonderful, or, oh my God, I cannot believe what the history of my country was and the perennial injustices that are now embodied in institutions that basically make it almost impossible to see anything right about the country. And mm -hmm. one of your arguments that really spoke to me was that that's a false choice. And some of the decisions that seem really big because you feel like you're taking a side, you're choosing a camp, are actually not that big because you can hold both of these ideas in your mind at the same time. Yeah, Felix, you described that beautifully. And that's the research on paradox. The idea that when we have a paradox mindset, we can hold two truths that appear to contradict each other, we can hold both of those at the same time. Mm -hmm. It can be true that there are elements of our history that were brutal. It can be true there are elements of our history that were beautiful. And rather than having to, as you said, choose one or the other, we can accept that both coexist with each other. Mm -hmm. When we do that, mm -hmm. our brain kind of unlocks. Businesses are there to be businesses. And at this point in society, they're also going to be a major institution in society. I want to explain what I mean by identity politics, a term which is often misused. It was originally coined by Black feminists in the 70s. They'd been shut out of the Black power movement and the women's liberation movement. They wanted to fully participate in both and political life more broadly. Dr. Kianga Yamada Taylor at Princeton explained, one could not expect Black women to be wholly active in political movements that neither represented nor advanced their interests. Identity politics were essential as entry points for Black women to engage in politics. In modern political jargon, identity politics are often referred to as an antithesis or distraction from class struggle. And they've made a decision to no longer try to have class warfare. They want racial warfare. But the Combe River Collective, who created the term identity politics, were socialists 
who believed recognition of people's needs based on different identities was part of cultivating more power for the working class. The whole point was that their identities and their class position was intertwined. The needs of oppressed communities aren't obstacles in the fight for worker power. They're ways to build solidarity, which begets more power. Like the 1980s lesbians and gays support minors movement, where a group of queer Britons rallied together for minor labor rights. In the 1930s through the 1960s, labor unions were some of the most powerful voices against racial segregation. As solidarity increased between working people across race, movements for workers' rights, women's rights, gay rights, and civil rights won big victories. In response, conservatives launched new efforts to destroy the solidarity of the working class. The Right to Work movement, a collection of laws helping companies destroy unions, was started by Vance Muse, a Texas businessman in the early 20th century. Muse said of unionization, from now on, white women and white men will be forced into organizations with black African apes whom they will have to call brother or lose their jobs. But today, the wealthy and powerful use the term identity politics to mean anything they consider too black or queer or feminine for their tastes. Identity politics. Tribal racial identity politics. The never-ending stream of identity politics. So how did the form of politics created by black radical feminist socialists become a favorite of Pepsi and Starbucks? The answer is elite capture. In most societies, there are elites who have advantages over other people in some specific area of life, who have more land or resources or even skill at something than the people around them. But how much control over how we work, where we live, or even how we talk can elites get by some more narrow kind of advantage? That depends on how unequal things are, how big the inequality is between elites and non-elites, and how effective non-elites can be in demanding fairness across different aspects of social life. The elite few redirect resources and institutions that should serve the many towards their own interests. What was once all of ours becomes theirs. That's the norm in hierarchical society. Elites capture identity politics for largely the same reasons and in the same ways as they capture everything else, from natural resources to government subsidies to labor. The CEO of J.P. Morgan took a knee at a bank brand without addressing systemic problems of capital and loan access or investments in companies that benefit from racial inequality. Washington, D.C. opened Black Lives Matter Plaza while the district's police were shooting black residents, harassing protesters, and violently enforcing the racial status quo. And every Pride Month, major corporations and even the military post messages claiming to care about the LGBTQ plus community. Corporations captured identity politics because they saw how valuable it is. They understand it changed how people felt about themselves and each other, so they found a way to make it work for them. Imagine our society as a house. Got a number of rooms in it, but some of those rooms are only accessible to certain people based on their race or class or other factors. There are plenty of rooms of power like this in our real society. At the top of the house is the nicest room. Resources from the rest of the rooms flow there because of how the house is built. There, elite members of the house make decisions on how the house is run. The elites in this room might feel pressure from the people in other rooms to at least acknowledge that the way things are being run is unfair and unequal. The elites don't want to lose wealth and power, but they want to appear like they're recognizing the humanity of the people in the other rooms. To stay on top without giving up anything, they take the language of identity politics. They recognize other people in the room who represent marginalized demographics. They don't change the structure of the house. 
if change who appears in the nicest rooms. They might even pass the mic to those people. They might choose to take up less space or center the most marginalized. It's easy for the elite. Just make it seem like they are elevating new voices or creating space for people who were previously denied it. I call that deference politics because it's based on asking us to defer to others in the room who come from more marginalized identities and to believe the act of listening to the people who represent those communities in the room is the solution. Lifting up marginalized voices and making space for others can be a useful step, but deferring to more marginalized voices within the room of power on its own does nothing for all those other people in the house who will never access wealth or power. And sometimes, claiming to care about marginalized voices can be a way to maintain wealth and power for the elite. Listen to this clip from an internal REI podcast. Hi, REI. My name is Walt Wallace, and I serve as your Chief Diversity and Social Impact Officer. I use she, her pronouns, and am speaking to you today from the traditional lands of the Ohlone people. The same podcast then goes on to implore employees not to unionize. One of the top questions that must be on people's minds is why REI doesn't think unionization is the right thing for the co-op or for the employee. They use progressive language to union bust. Starbucks made a PR push for their program expanding healthcare benefits for trans employees in 2018, then threatened to take those benefits away during the current union push. Amazon even used charities meant to support black business owners to argue against antitrust laws, which would support small businesses. If we really want to change how life works for working people and others towards the bottom of the social structure, we can't just focus on matters of representation who is speaking. We need new rooms and a new blueprint for the house that they're in. Yes, it is valuable for individuals to learn how to understand their privilege and to organize with others who share our identities. But forms of deference politics that ask identity-privileged people to take up less space and feel bad about themselves will never threaten the global financial and political elite who control our society. Instead of identity politics, which can be easily co-opted by corporate America, we need to work together for constructive politics, focusing on positive outcomes for working people. To get there, we can start with identity, but however we start, we have to arrive at solidarity. We need to recognize the way we are different, yes, but to actually challenge the elites who dominate wealth and power in our society, the working class also needs to connect through our similarity. That's solidarity. Solidarity recognizes our mutual interests and shared humanities and identifies our shared adversaries. It's about accepting that our fates are intertwined instead of allowing those in power to exploit our differences to divide us. Solidarity is a key principle for successful labor union organizing. You know, it takes a whole freaking village to win. You know, one voice is not going to count. We want to represent all people. We want to make sure that um, it's all inclusive and putting workers in the driver's seat, that's the ultimate power. It's quite illogical to actually say, well, I'm gay and I'm into defending the gay community, but I don't care about anything else. It's ludicrous. It's important that if you're defending communities, that you also defend all communities and not just one. Solidarity unites working people against the corporate elite and isn't satisfied with symbolic victories or the mere appearance of justice. Solidarity fights until a more equitable distribution of wealth and power has been won. But we can't achieve true solidarity until we identify and acknowledge what is really dividing us. Far-right media, establishment politicians, and big corporations united in the cause of capturing more power and wealth for the elite. As Dorian Warren says, the goal is not a rainbow oligarchy, but a truly equitable multiracial democracy. 
Once we collectively realize who is trying to divide us, we can work towards solidarity and real economic justice for everyone, not just the symbolic identity politics facade created by the ultra wealth. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, who make winter better with thoughtfully designed clothes that make you feel cozy at home, supported during outdoor activities, and good knowing that for every item you purchase, they donate another to someone in need. They use the softest materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and even cashmere, which makes them the perfect cozy wintertime layers. And their slippers are soft on the outside, but even softer on the inside, thanks to materials like fuzzy Sherpa. And for the active among you, Bombas makes temperature-regulating clothing so you can feel more comfortable while jogging, snowboarding, or doing whatever you love most. I've been enjoying all of Bombas materials and features for years now, but of course, my favorite feature is that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested items at homeless shelters, which is precisely why that's Bombas' focus with their buy one, gift one model. And so far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 75 million items of essential clothing through a network of 3,500 on-the-ground organizations serving their communities. So go to bombas.com slash best and use the code BEST for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best and use the code BEST at checkout. James Comer, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. A serious post, a serious job with a committee that has a serious duty to the American people. Oversight and accountability. James Comer was on uh, the news this weekend and was talking about how this bank, SVB, you're hearing it called, Silicon Valley Bank, was a woke, a woke bank, a woke financial institution. But, and the, Apparently, that's why it failed. And then you're finding that the same people who battle against woke are now complaining that Biden's not bailing out the bank. It, it all makes a ton of sense if you close your eyes and bury your head in the sand. Nonsense. The reason this bank, the, the, what happened, happened is because of deregulation. It's once again another indicator that Donald Trump and his flagrant deregulating of many industries is causing harm. Here is James Comer talking about woke banks. And then we see now coming out that uh, they were one of the most woke banks in uh, their inv their quest for uh, the ESG type uh, type policy you know, and investing. You know, this could be a trend and there are right. consequences for bad Democrat policy. And I think we need to keep an eye on all the, the banking sector right now. Well, again, if you need any more evidence that they're not serious, just play that clip. If you need any more evidence that they'd have no idea what woke is. Play that clip. If you need any more evidence that woke is just anything that can give them a click, watch that video. In 2017 was the movement when finally Donald Trump had had a, a majority of Republicans in the House that they started doing the damage to the country and our financial institutions uh, under the guise of deregulating, letting them let them regulate themselves. It stymies creativity. It stymies investment. 
The same people who passed an irresponsible and unpaid for massive set of tax breaks for the wealthy that created one and a half trillion dollar deficits just about every year of Donald Trump's presidency. These same people were calling to deregulate. Um, apparently, if you if you pay attention to them with no understanding of what the ramifications would be. Here's Kevin McCarthy in the lead up to rolling back these regulations, talking about the need to roll back these regulations. Lisa Lambert from Reuters. Given um, that we're talking about regulation and economic growth, are there any financial regulations or banking regulations that you feel are impeding economic growth and that you might put through the CRA on January 30th? Uh, the Speaker and I have sat down with uh, Jeb Henserling just last night talking about his Choice Act and looking at where where capital is king jobs are created so so much as what happened in Dodd-Frank you push capital in other places you try to eliminate all risk where you eliminate growth when you make that happen you create an agency that's outside of um, accountability of government when I say with the people because of the funding um, I think there's a lot of areas there you're going to find some big reforms. And I firmly believe you'll get a lot of bipartisanship on that. Mm -hmm. um, because if you want to see the country grow, you got to have people willing to take risks, people willing to have investments. If you want to see growth, you need, you need uh, people willing to take risk. Well, apparently people took so much risk that the bank failed. That's okay with Kevin McCarthy, though, because it lines up with the Republican agenda to buttress massively wealthy people from any consequence against their bets, their bad bets. Now, the problem lies in the fact that there are several little people who are affected by this, people who are employees of companies who are now unable to make payroll because of this bank. So it puts the government and people who actually care about people in a bad spot. Where capital is king, jobs are created, he said. That's why we need to deregulate the banks. Is anybody surprised that this is taking place right now? If you haven't been paying attention, you might be surprised. But there were uh, people who were calling this years in advance of what was going to take place. Here's Bernie making a prediction that here we are once again. Bernie called it. There's legislation in the Senate that would roll back provisions on, on Dodd-Frank. It's got bipartisan support. Yeah. They say it's going to help community banks. It's going to help credit unions be more flexible in lending. You're opposed to it. I am strongly opposed to it. Why? What this legislation would do is deregulate 25 out of the largest 38 banks in this country. It amazes me how short memories are in the United States Congress. In 2007, 2008, this country was hurled into the worst economic downturn in the modern history of this country because of the greed and the recklessness and the illegal behavior of major financial institutions. And what's happened since the deregulation, since Dodd-Frank, I should say, is we have seen the largest banks become even larger. What the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, uh, reported just the other day, as you'll recall, is they said, this moves us closer uh, to the likelihood of another bank failing. Why would we want to do that? Banks are now making, in general, they have made in the last two years, record-breaking profits. Yes, we want to help credit unions and small banks, 
But banks that are worth 200, 250 billion dollars in assets, those are not small banks. Do you think a collapse like we saw in 2008 could happen again? Of course. I mean, are there enough stop gaps in place? Well, but that's precisely what they're doing. They're removing some of those stop gaps. And according to the CBO, it will make it more likely that some of these banks may fail, leading to a massive taxpayer bail. But let me ask you this. I mean, I gotta ask you this is all over the country, there are issues on people's minds. You know, whether it's guns, immigration, health care, it amazes me that this is the issue that the Republican leadership has put on the floor of the Senate. And you know why? Last year, the financial institutions spent $200 million in lobbying. Over the last 20 or 30 years, they have spent billions of dollars on campaign contributions. This is the corruption. What you're seeing is the, the corruption of the American political system. Big money rules and the needs of ordinary people gets ignored. And here we are, and in recent days, two banks have failed. 25 of the largest 38 banks deregulated. It's interesting the comment that he makes about how short the memories of members of Congress are. Uh, And in that way, he was talking about looking back. Like, oh, we're going to put this in place because they forgot what happened as recently as 2008. Ten years prior to this comment he's making. Really, we, we should be talking about the memories of, of, of people to look forward, look into the future, because there were people out there who were calling this, saying this would happen. And there were even Democrats who voted for this. It's an irresponsibility on the part of mainly Republicans because they push for this kind of thing. But it's also a failure on the part of every Democrat who voted for this. There needs to be regulations, guardrails, rules in place for financial institutions who have a tendency to imbue risk into their portfolio, imbue risk into their normal operating procedure. And that risk doesn't come without impact on regular, hardworking people and their paychecks and their bank accounts and the economy in general. That jeopardizes us all. That's why the government has a responsibility to regulate responsibly. And to roll back regulations is anything but responsible. Woke. Corporate America is based on lies. A bunch of woke corporatists running this country. The woke corporate cowards, it's now hitting, if you can believe it, new levels of derangement and psychosis. The GOP is fighting with one of its oldest friends, corporate America. But it's just business. Let me explain. Take a moment to feel sorry for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It may be hard to sympathize with the biggest, most powerful lobbying group in America, but... It's going through a tough time. It's not sure who its real friends are anymore. For decades, the answer was simple. Republicans. Sure. Businesses have given a lot to both parties. But with the GOP, it was special. They bonded over hating taxes and slashing regulations and seeing corporations as more than the sum of their cubicles. Corporations are people, my friend. But now they are protesting Georgia's new voting restrictions which is why this beef really got going. The bill, which was signed into law in March, was blasted by Democrats as a brazen attempt to make it harder for black people to vote. 
by limiting access to mail-in ballots, reducing the number of drop boxes, and making it a crime to give somebody a glass of water when they're waiting in a massively long line to vote. Two Atlanta-based corporate titans, Coca-Cola and Delta, condemned the law, and Major League Baseball moved the All-Star game from Atlanta to Denver, Colorado. And that got former President Trump to fire back. He called for boycotts on all of the, quote, woke companies who've spoken out against the law, which is a big step for a guy who drinks 12 Diet Cokes a day, 12 Diet Cokes, and had a special Diet Coke button on the Resolute desk. He must have meant, you know, a boycott on everyone who doesn't make his favorite beverage. But the woke companies weren't just popping up in Georgia because new restrictions on voting rights weren't limited to the beach state. Republican lawmakers have proposed at least 360 laws in 47 states that would, in some way or another, limit access for voters to the polls. Texas-based American Airlines and Dell Technologies came out against a state bill that would limit voting hours and get rid of drive-through voting. Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick took it personally. Let me tell you what, Mr. American Airlines, I take it personally. Corporate America didn't back down. Hundreds of companies, including Amazon, Google, Starbucks, and GM, issued a public statement vowing to oppose any discriminatory legislation that makes it harder for people to vote. Of course, some Republicans strongly agree with this outpouring of corporate activism. The fact that, that more people are speaking out is a good thing for America, not a bad thing. Under the First Amendment, every corporation in America should be free to participate in the political process. Wait, 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 no. That's Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell from a decade ago praising the Supreme Court's decision on Citizens United, which let businesses spend unlimited funds on elections. Now that companies are fighting Republicans on voting rights, 2021, Mitch, sounds a little different. My warning, if you will, to corporate America is to stay out of politics. Wow. Mitch McConnell doesn't even want their money anymore? Mitch McConnell doesn't want their money anymore? Mitch doesn't even want their money anymore? Mitch McConnell doesn't even want their money anymore? I just don't even know. Everything we've been told about politics is wrong. I'm not talking about political contributions. Ah, okay. Well, never mind that. To recap, companies can say whatever they like about politics as long as they're speaking in Benjamins. When they want to actually speak about politics, corporations need to shut the fuck up. Of course, this fight over voting rights isn't the first rough patch for the former BFFs. Back in 2016, companies backed away from North Carolina after the state passed a law that forced transgender people to use the wrong bathrooms. And last year, another cabal of corporations promised to slash donations to 147 congressional Republicans who voted against certifying the 2020 presidential election. So when you think about it, corporations becoming people really did pave the way for them to become activists, organizers, movement leaders, or maybe not. In case you forgot, there are reasons to become a corporate social justice warrior that don't involve social justice like sniffing a profit. Blue America is where these companies are making money. Counties that voted for Biden made up 71% of the economic activity in the U.S. Customers and employees are generally younger and more diverse than the Republican base, which is mostly white and over 50. One recent academic study found respondents were 25% less likely to buy from a company they were told had conservative values and more than 40% less likely to apply for a job there. If a company had liberal values, respondents said that didn't really change their opinion. Taking a liberal stand to protect the bottom line would hardly be new. 
Back in 1914, Henry Ford blew everyone's minds by jacking up wages to double the national minimum to an astronomical $5 a day. He wasn't just being the original best boss ever. He wanted a way to retain workers despite the mind-numbing drudgery of his new assembly lines, and he wanted to turn his employees into his new customers. Ford profits exploded. And corporations might not actually be the leftist guardians of Wokistan that Republicans now say they are. We're seeing big corporations becoming the woke enforcers of the Democratic Party. Take Delta. The airline only came out swinging against Georgia's voting law after it passed. And five days earlier, Delta had issued a statement that praised parts of the bill. Delta CEO Ed Bastian tried to clear all this up by explaining that even though the company's lobbyists engaged extensively with state lawmakers writing the bill, it was just to get rid of the really, really terrible parts. If you hate this bill, <laughs> You should see the one they tried to pass. The early versions of the proposed bill had some really toxic and very suppressive elements to it. Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, wasn't buying it, saying Bastion's criticisms were, quote, a stark contrast to our conversations with the company. And the state house fired up a warning shot, voting to revoke a multi-million dollar jet fuel tax break before the idea died in the Senate. Which probably tells us that this beef is kind of overhyped because there's not much either side can do to each other. Republicans can't slap on new regulations that companies hate or raise national business taxes since they're not running the federal government anymore. And opposing regulations and taxes is like their thing, right? CEOs will probably keep speaking up as long as they think that's what their customers want. But what would be truly shocking would be a big company taking a stand on a social issue that actually hurts their bottom line. When that happens, then maybe something really will have changed. Anyone on the left welcoming new allies should remember where their real interest lies, maximizing shareholder profits. After all, it's not personal, it's just business. We've just heard clips today, starting with Sand Spear explaining the history of woke and why the right doesn't bother to try to define it accurately, or at all. The broadcast explained ESG and how maintaining a livable planet is just a culture war. After Hours pointed out that woke capitalism is just another word for stakeholder capitalism, and that it has been uncontroversial because it's more window dressing than substantive. More Perfect Union explained the elite capture of identity politics, which is why our focus must be on solidarity politics across identity and economics. The Dollamore Daily looked at the deregulation behind the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, which the right is blaming on wokeism, no surprise there. And the Couch Report from Vice News warned that woke capitalism is entirely about capitalism and not so much about being woke. So while they're seeking profits, don't be fooled into believing that they've become true progressive allies. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Uneffing the Republic, digging a little deeper on ESG greenwashing and why it's actually good for their bottom line. As with so many idiotic culture war clashes that bleed into the political discourse, ESGs have become the new way for officials on both sides to prove their ideological bona fides. Apparently, owning the libs on climate is now more important to this era's brand of Republican politics than the free market principles that they fetishized for so long.
To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now I have just a couple more thoughts on today's topic. As part of our research, we heard a few pretty bad attempts to explain the origins of woke capitalism, or socially conscious capitalism, or ESG, or whatever you want to call it. Basically, how did we get to the point where corporations started speaking out on social issues, particularly speaking out on the left side of those social issues? And since other people were doing a poor job, I thought I would take a stab at doing better. So here's my take. First of all, this is not new. I read Rules for Radicals recently, published in 1971, and here's a passage from near the end of the book, quote, the corporations must forget their nonsense about private sectors. It is not just that government contracts and subsidies have long since blurred the line between public and private sectors, but that every American individual or corporation is public as well as private, public in that we are Americans and concerned about our national welfare. We have a double commitment, and corporations had better recognize this for the sake of their own survival. Poverty, discrimination, disease, crime— Everything is as much a concern of the corporation as is profits. The days when corporate public relations worked to keep the corporation out of controversy, days of playing it safe, of not offending Democratic or Republican customers, advertisers, or associates, those days are done. End quote. And just in case you didn't know, Rules for Radicals is a very famous book about organizing for progressive goals. As I said, 1971. They said the days of corporations being able to ignore the social good are over. So you could take that a couple of ways. One, this is not a new idea, so anyone who's claiming it's new clearly doesn't know what they're talking about. For instance, one person who got famous by being anti-woke on Fox News and who is now running for president as a Republican, but it's someone you probably never heard of, his name is Ramaswamy, he said that he thought wokeness and woke capitalism uh, started back in the financial crisis of 2008. So, swing and a miss. But number two, you could say, see, I told you the left has been trying to bend corporations to their will, and this just proves it. This is the plan. It was in the book. To which I would say, sort of. But here, listen to the line that came immediately before that paragraph in the book. Quote, the revolution must manifest itself in the corporate sector by the corporation's realistic appraisal of conditions in the nation, unquote. In other words, corporations are always going to follow their financial best interest, and so we need to change the conditions in the nation enough so that corporations find it more profitable to follow us than to fight us. Corporations aren't infected by a woke mind virus. They're responding to the demands of the market and trying to maximize profit. But there's another talking point in the anti-woke argument I want to address. They say that the left is trying to get done through the corporate sector what we weren't able to get done through the ballot box. And I must admit, this is actually a pretty clever talking point. The implication is that if you can't get a given policy passed through the government— then it must be an unpopular policy, because we live in a democracy, and anything that's popular gets passed, right? 
And so that strongly implies that progressive policies are unpopular. And then taking that as a premise, given our inability to pass our unpopular policies through the government, we have resorted to using some sort of black magic to convince corporations to do our dirty work for us, even though it would presumably go against their financial interests. Like I said, it's a clever talking point that makes the left sound both unpopular and vaguely deceitful. And as all the best lies are, it's based on a partial truth. The reality is that our government on both the federal level and in a majority of the states is totally hamstrung by anti-democratic forces that prevent even wildly popular policies from passing. These forces include the corrupting influence of money in politics, gerrymandering, voter suppression, the filibuster, the lasting impacts of the Powell memo, Robert Bork's theory on antitrust legislation, the fact that one party has devolved into a cult of personality, among other things. So it's true, actually, that the left has been stymied in our attempts to pass progressive legislation, but it's not true that the reason is because our policies are unpopular. It's because our system is broken to the point that it no longer even resembles a democracy. I mean, I know it's hard to imagine, but back in the 70s, Ralph Nader and his merry band of activists were making real progress in demanding the regulation of corporations. But then the era of neoliberalism set in, standards changed, and that door was largely shut to the left. And so, given that reality, it's only sensible that the left would have shifted its focus. If we can't get progress through the government, then we must look elsewhere. And so in the 70s, you know, the civil rights movement had just come and, and had inspirational success, and there was still energy for social change. So it's only natural that energy would shift from government, where we began hitting a brick wall, to social revolution, demanding equal rights for all, such as the campaign for the Equal Rights Amendment, the gay rights movement, which had just been sparked by the Stonewall riots in 1969, and the continued push against racism. So it's true that the left has been stymied by government in recent decades. I mean, the Equal Rights Amendment failed, same-sex marriage remained illegal until 2015, and even then it wasn't passed through Congress, but through the Supreme Court. And I'm pretty sure we didn't solve racism. But what power we lost in government was shifted to a campaign of public persuasion, which is now showing its impact in the form of even corporations coming to our side. So the war on woke capitalism should be understood as a continuation of the same conservative campaign that broke our democracy. Because conservatives generally believed in democracy until their views made them unelectable. And then, just like in the Jim Crow era, rather than update their views, they began to change the rules of the system to keep themselves in power illegitimately. Well, similarly, they used to believe in corporate freedom to pursue profits, until it became more profitable to support progressive ideas than conservative ones. Now Republicans are changing the rules again in an attempt to stop them by force. So there has been a conscious campaign from the left going on trying to manipulate the political and corporate landscapes. But the only real plan we had was, let's convince everyone we're right. <laughs> Whereas on the right, the campaign has been, well, if people won't vote for us, then we should use the power of government to make it harder for them to vote at all. And if corporations disagree with us, then we should use the power of government to punish them and control them any way we can. 
And that is pretty much politics and capitalism in the United States. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail, or you can now send us a text through SMS, WhatsApp, or Signal at 202-999-3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LeWindy, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes. In addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And don't forget that you can join the conversation by joining our Discord community. A link to join is in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.